Okay, two quick things. First, no more coffee for him uh, prior to service. And secondly, did you just compare me to hummus? I mean, I, I kind of felt like he oversold my, my feelings for like the donut place where we got donuts. I just really, really liked them. And he made it, you know, everybody was like, I had a kid coming, they were just donuts. Well, I never said they were heavenly manna. I just said they were donuts. And now, hummus. Anyway, I have way too much to get into today to be distracted by all of this. But um, uh, I just want to begin this morning by saying, saying, Hayom Shalom. Everybody say, Hayom Shalom. Hayom Shalom, that's not what we say on this day, is it? No, it's not a thing, but we'll loop back to it and you'll understand why. Uh, Last week, I laid out three goals. One, to accurately proclaim what the Holy Spirit gave to the Hebrew writer to give to us. Two, to rehabilitate your respect and my respect for the Holy Spirit inspiration of the book of Hebrews because others have undermined it. Number three, to correctly apply its powerful message in the manner the Holy Spirit wanted to wanted it applied. And there has never been a generation that needs its truth more than we do right now in these last days. So we looked last week at the power of the gospel. And I want to encourage you, I wanted to encourage you because it's encouraging me that many of you are letting me know that you take time during the week to go back and watch again. I realize that, you know, sometimes it can be like drinking from a fire hydrant uh, because we're disseminating so much. And now through the miracle of technology, we can go back and you can pause me and you can go like, what did he say? Well, you know, was that a joke or was he just, you know, too much coffee? Who knows? Um... So Hayom, today, uh, we have the benefit of instant replay, and you can easily go back and and watch again and kind of follow the train of thought. So even if something goes by you today, don't stop and try to go back in your mind and process that. Just continue with the flow. You see, the power of the gospel is the power of God's word coming to pass. The power of the, of, of the promise is the same thing. A promise is simply God's word that he has said that is going to come to pass. Last week we looked at the power of the gospel, how God literally took and used the very thing that Satan was going to use to destroy us, death, And he used that very vehicle to redeem us. And may I just sidebar right now. You may feel like you're in a bit of a wilderness. You may feel like you're facing some challenges in your life. You may feel like there's some some uphill struggles. And it feels like maybe life is trying to defeat you. Good. It may very well be that the attack of the enemy is the very thing God is going to use to reveal his power. That's the power of the gospel. God takes the tools of the, and the weapons of the enemy and can literally use them for our benefit if we'll trust him. So don't curse your time in the wilderness. It may be the very place where you hear his voice the most. Today, Hayom, we're going to be working our way through Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and a little bit of 5. And there is a passage in chapter 4 and I, try, I was trying to figure out how do I illustrate for you the significance of this passage. And so this is what I came up with, because we're all familiar with John 3.16. As John 3.16 is to the gospel, 
of God sending his son. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is to the power of God's will. I mean, if you want a verse that just succinctly and powerfully states the proposition of the gospel, John 3, 16 is it. If you want a really powerful verse that speaks to the power of God's word, the writer of Hebrews pens this in Hebrews 4, 12. Now, unfortunately, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is often... Uh, Preach, it's often, well, it's, it's often preached uh, in sermons about the nature of God's word, but it also happens outside the context of where it appears in the context of the Hebrew writer's letter. So we're going to look at it in the context of what does it say in the context of what we're reading. So what is that verse? It is simply this, for, for the fact is, the word of God is living and active and sharper than two, any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power of God's word. And we're going to see how it relates today to the power of the promise. So Hayom, today, if you will in these moments open your mind and your heart, you might just hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Will you pray with me? Abba Father, to that end, we ask you to do just that. Your apostle prayed that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, or wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of your Son. And so, Father, by the presence and ministry of your Holy Spirit and the hearts and minds of those who have gathered here this morning and those who are watching online today and those who will come across this message in the days to come, will you meet us with a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in the understanding of Yeshua, your Son? I pray this for his glory. Amen. All right, so class is now in session. What do I mean by that? I, I've got to do some. I got to do some teaching about how this book comes together. Two frames that are used in this book. The one is I'll just call to the Hebrew heritage, and the other, well, I'll get to that in a minute. The Hebrew heritage, as I've referred to it as the beautiful tense of Shem. This is the whole story and legacy of the Hebrew people and the Hebrew language. And the writer of Hebrews is going to constantly be referring back and using that language and history and heritage uh, to help us understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us in these last days. But there's another frame of reference, and I'm just going to nickname it Holy Hellenism. Now, Hellenism is a word that is used to refer to three things. Uh, the Greek religion, which was obviously pagan and polytheistic, um, the Greek language and the Greek culture. But we're not interested in all that. We're interested in holy Hellenism. Well, what is that? Hellenism also is a word that is used to describe the, the Greek language. And there's an ancient Greek uh, author who wrote these words defining what is good Greek. Good Greek, by good Greek is meant language that is faultless in its point. Meaning, uh, uh, good Greek is language that drives home the point, expresses it so explicitly, so clearly, that you can get a hold of the, of the author's meaning. That's good Greek. And so that's my definition for holy Hellenism. We're looking at the good Greek that the Hebrew writer is using to tell the Hebrew story to the Hebrew people. Now, Hayom, today, 
There are two elements that are used by the Hebrew writer that I must share with you before we dive into this text. The first comes from the context of the Hebrew heritage, and it's become a real problem in our lifetime. But it is essential if fully, to fully appreciate the point that the writer is making. But it's a loaded term, and you've heard it, especially those who have been connected with the part of the body of Christ that loves the Hebrew heritage. It's the word midrash. How many of you have heard the word midrash? It is a very controversial word. Why is it so controversial? Namely, because it gets misused and misapplied repeatedly. People just attach whatever definition to it they want. So what is a midrash? Well, that's a loaded question. Because it's almost impossible to give you a simple one-statement explanation. The oversimplified definition is what gets us in trouble, but the oversimplified definition isn't actually incorrect. Hebrew roots groups often use it to describe a Bible study. How many of you ever been at an event you say, well, we're going to have a morning midrash? And what, what happens in that midrash is really we sit in a circle or we're in a room and we have a Bible discussion. And so the definition of midrash simply becomes a, a time when we're just going to talk about a text and seek to commentate on its meaning and application. That's not entirely wrong, but a midrash is more than just a discussion. It's a method of interpreting scripture, a method of drawing out the meaning of the text. It's not sitting around asking, it's not serendipity, hey, what does this verse mean to you? A midrash is seeking to understand what did the author actually say, and ultimately, what is the Holy Spirit saying to the author to say to us? Are you with me? Am I going too fast? Don't, don't forget, you can, you can watch it again. <laughs> so what is it? Well, that's a good question. And while there's no easy definition, midrash is something that we have to become familiar with because of how it is used to help us interpret scripture. So what is the method? It is a method of making connections and comparisons between biblical events, people, and scriptural text that may not on the surface seem related. So like if you go to one of the ancient Jewish midrashes written about Genesis 1 creation, they're actually going to start in Proverbs 8 verse 22. And they're going to show how that verse connects and relates to what we read in the event and the description of creation. So why is it so controversial? Well, two reasons. The, the first is the question of its authority. Does Midrash, and another simple definition I should throw out here, is commentary. And here's where we get into trouble. Does Midrash have the same uh, authority as Scripture? So here, here's the problem. I wish I had a, a headset today. In Judaism, here is the Scripture, and here is Midrash. In Christianity, here is the Scripture... And here is Midrash, because it's commentary. The problem is, both are incorrect. They need more explanation than that. You see, in Judaism, the answer is sometimes, yes, Midrash is looked, as, looked at almost authoritatively. But in Christianity, we would say, no, commentary is not Scripture. <sighs> But the problem is sometimes the scripture is commentary. 
Did you hear me? Sometimes the scripture is midrash. I, I can remember people saying to me, well, you know, I've come to see the New Testament as midrash. And I knew we were in trouble because what they were saying is it was a reducing view of it's just commentary as opposed to Holy Spirit breathed scripture. Do you see why it's controversial? you see why it's a problem? Because it was used to undermine the text of the New Testament by simply saying, well, that's just midrash. That is absolutely 100% true and 100% false at the same time if your definition of midrash is that midrash can't be scripture. There is midrash in scripture. That doesn't mean every midrash is inspired. Oh, this is so complicated. Are you with me though? Do you understand, are you understanding the kind of the playing field? So there's another reason for its controversy, and that is that Midrash uses a four-part method of interpreting the Bible, uh, which is an acronym called PARDES. How many of you ever heard of PARDES? It's an acronym for four uh, Hebrew words, Peshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Peshat simply means the plain sense meaning. That's the first level of interpretation. It says what it says, it means what it means. The Ramez level is the illusion. Well, it says what it says and it means what it means, but it may be alluding to something else or being used allegorically of something else. The Drosh level, hence Midrash, is the homiletical or the applicational level. David slew Goliath. You can slay your giants too. That's Drosh. That's making application from the text. The sold level, or the beneath the sod, I like to say, the mystery level, is how you can interpret things, how the letters are written, the numerical value of the letters, that there's this mystery level. Spoiler alert. Do you guys want to know what the sold level meaning of the entire scripture is? Are you ready to write this down? I'm going to reveal the mystery. Jesus. Jesus. Oh, I'm gonna, Jesus, you search the scriptures, you try. Jesus. That's the mystery of the tabernacle. That's the mystery of the temple. That's the mystery of the calling of the children of Israel. That's the mystery of the altar of incense. That's the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the mystery of the land of Israel. Jesus. It all adds up to him. Spoiler. So why is this a problem? Because about the second century, the Jewish people began to write down their midrash, their commentaries on the Old Testament, and they were using that method. But it wasn't until 1,300 years later that a group of Jewish commentators who were into mysticism called Kabbalah, which just means to receive, when we're in Israel and, you know, I need to call down to the front desk, to the reception desk, I call down, they say, Kabbalah, reception, all right? So Kabbalah is just how the scripture is received. But these guys, the problem was that 1,300 years later, these Jewish mystics then kind of codified what had already been written, had been used but because they were the ones that codified it, suddenly it's taboo. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
They were already commentating using the plain sense meaning. They were already writing books commentating on the illusions and the allegories of the text. They were already commentating on homiletical application. They were already exploring the depths of Scripture. But it was the mystics, some who have accused them, and I'm not saying they're wrong, of even having occultic ties. They were so focused on trying to find that mystery. And let me tell you, if you get so focused on trying to find the mystery that you miss the obvious, the mystery has done you no, no good. So the problem is, if I come to you today and I say, the book of Hebrews is Midrash, someone's going to go on the internet and tell you, Brent is a Kabbalist. It's already happened to me. Years ago, I was teaching a series in Revelation, and I was just using some Jewish references from the Qumran text, the Dead Sea Scroll text, and I was talking about Melchizedek and some of the things that, are, that the, those, those Kabbalists had commentated on Melchizedek, just trying to so, show some Jewish thought. The next thing you know, there's a full-page article on the, on the web calling me a false prophet and a cultist taking LSD and all kinds of stuff that I was endorsing Kabbalah. I most certainly was not. But the method is in the New Testament. The shady origins of those Jewish mystics who codified it doesn't change the fact that the Hebrew writer was using it 1,300 years or 1,200 years before they showed up. Are you with me? So this is kind of indemnifying myself, helping you understand what I mean and what I don't mean. So why am I telling you this? Because the book of Hebrews is definitively a midrash, a commentary that uses midrashic methods of interpretation, but is at the same time holy scripture. It is a commentary on the scriptures of the past, but it is also an inspired scripture that uses these methods uh, to correctly apply what they find in the Old Testament scriptures to give us the correct application. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is going to do in the book of Hebrews. He's going to make comparisons and connections from the past scriptures, from the people, from the, the events, from the location, and then he's going to drosh, he's going to show us how that applies. But he is doing it at Holy Spirit-inspired levels. And I'm going to show you that. So that's <laughs> way too much time on that, because now i got to talk about the Greek. <laughs> and we'll introduce you to a word that I don't expect you to remember, but it's called metonymy. It's a figure of speech whereby one word is used to substitute another. Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. So they all ran out and cut off their ear. What, what does he mean? By metonymy, ear is simply allegorically talking about the whole aspect of listening, right? We do this all the time. Metonymy has a sister we call synecdoche. <laughs> Say that three times fast. 
And like metonymy, it uses one word in place of another. But synecdoche uses a word as a part for the whole. In, in, in Caesar, when Caesar says that, the ear stands for the whole aspect of listening. The husband says, honey, we need groceries. The wife says, okay, I'll go to the store. Honey, that's not helpful. We don't need stores, we need groceries. I don't need you to go waste time sitting in the parking lot going, well, there's the store. In that sentence, the store, what? It implies everything connected to getting groceries. You use it all the time. Hey, lend me a hand. That's synecdoche. Are you with me? Your brain's going midrash and metonymy and like, ah, what does the Bible say? We're getting there. So again, why do I bring this up? Because the inspired writer of Hebrews is going to use both metonymy and synecdoche while commentating on the scripture using midrash. Hello. It was not a mic drop. I tried to like mic place. It is a brilliant blend of Hebrew heritage and holy Hellenism and Hayom today. We're going to encounter both. So let's dive in. One quick sidebar. <laughs> you got a devil. You know, you know, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? And uh, it's funny when you read some commentaries, some guys just say, it's Paul, and they write their whole commentary. Well, when Paul said this, Paul said that. You don't know if it's Paul or not. So I, I spend all my time calling him the writer of Hebrews, but I want to give him a new nickname. And I want you to know who I mean when I, because I, I'm going to start calling him Bezalel. Why, why would I say that? Do you remember who Bezalel was? Moses comes down from the mountain. He's received the commandment to build the tabernacle. Does Moses build a tabernacle? Nope. God supernaturally imparts the knowledge to someone Moses had to preach to about the tabernacle to actually be the one gifted to build the tabernacle. Jewish tradition says he was 13 years old. Some people say, well, it had to be one of the, the book of Hebrews had to be written by one of the guys who were eyewitnesses. Bezalel was not on the mountain, and he built, built the tabernacle. He was supernaturally gifted to pull all of that together, and that's how I see the book of Hebrews. That whoever this guy was, God supernaturally gifted him to bring together all of these components to make this message. So here we go. Now we're going to dive in. Chapter 3. Um, chapter 2. It ends with Messiah being made like us in all things so that he could serve us in all ways. Chapter 3, Messiah is shown as the one who not only was able to serve us in all things, but was also serving God in all things pertaining to God. Chapter 3 begins with a midrash. Remember, making a connection and a comparison. Moses was a servant in God's house. Yeshua, the son, 
Jesus is the son over God's house. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in his house. He starts with this midrash by, tell, by making this comparison, by telling the reader to pay careful attention to Jesus. What is he saying? Look deeper. Pay attention to what is being revealed to you through the Son. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. What did he just tell you? Moses was a midrash. When you look at the life and ministry of, of how God used Moses, you're looking at, it, it, to correctly interpret Moses, you have to understand, and by the way, this isn't limited to just Christianity, our view, this is also Jewish view as well, that Moses is a type of a future redeemer. That's a midrash. It's a comparison. It's a connection. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So the first midrash is the comparison and connection between Jesus and Moses. Now, good old Bezalel, Bezzy for short, is going to make another connection and comparison, actually a contrast, between Jesus and the Israelites of the wilderness who were part of that generation. Verse 7, today if you hear the Holy Spirit say... Everybody say, Hayom. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. Did you just hear what that verse that he just quoted said? God says, I knew their heart. Hebrews 4.12 come to mind. The writer then calls us to focus our attention so that we do not act like that generation in the wilderness who would not listen and would not believe. And to enforce this, he quotes David uh, from Psalms 95, 7-11. Now I just want to throw in a little quick tidbit. This is a verse that proves the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, was familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament. How do I know that? If you go to your English Bible and you turn to Psalm 95, you will nowhere find that it gives reference to David being the author of that text. If you go to the Greek Septuagint, written about 250 to 200 years before Jesus, guess what? It describes the, the, the Psalm to David. This, this guy knows the Greek text. So what is he doing? He's saying you best be listening to what the scripture has said about that event and what God said to those people. Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called Hayom today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, if we, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For uh, who provoked me when they had heard? Indeed, 
not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Was it not them? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it uh, not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, are you listening to what God promised? Notice the writer keeps coming back to Psalm 95. And he keeps looping. This is another one of these, these beautiful methods. And this is why I keep refer, why I greeted you today with Hayom Shalom. You're not used to that, are you? What are you used to? Shabbat Shalom. So why, Hayom Shalom is not a thing. I just made it up. But I'm trying to illustrate what the writer of Hebrews is doing by audibly lacing one word through the text. He's making connections, and that's what I'm trying to do with you today. And I mean, it's like a hick trying to explain a masterpiece. Ooh, that was great the way he used that one word over and over again. <sighs> but this is a miraculous, I mean, the multi-levels of things that are happening in here. <sighs> All I get to do is go... Look at that. Chapter 4. Therefore, let's continue the Midrash. Therefore, let us fear if, a, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith, trust in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, Jesus, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Guys, notice the Midrash and the metonymy. A promise remains both them and us received a promise from God. What is that promise? It is God's word. It is something God has spoken that will come to pass. The power of the promise is that it is the living and active word of God that will come to pass. Now, the Midrash is the comparison between the promise they received and the promise we received. This, this is kind of amazing. You see the connection he's making? They were given a promise. They, they were given a promise while they were in Egypt. They were given promises when they were in the wilderness. Now, what is that promise? The metonymy is that entering his rest is now being used as a synonym for salvation. Did you realize that the Sabbath is a midrash it is something that when you look at it, you're not just looking at a weekly obligation, you are looking at a future promise of God that he's going to fulfill. Should have gotten amen there because that's, that's really cool, at least in my head. And by the way, this isn't the first time he's done this. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 speaks of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5, he, he clarifies when he uses the words olam haba, the world to come, he says that this is, this is what we're talking about. So when he's talking about salvation, if he calls it olam haba, that's just metonymy. That's just synecdoche. That's just a different word standing in place of 
the rest of it. And by the way, guys, the Sabbath rest is one amazing, beautiful expression of the promise of God, but it's just one part. Okay? Entering his rest, having a share in the world to come. What are we talking about? We're talking about salvation. Both are good news. The gospel is good news, but this raises a question. What is the gospel? Because he just said that in the wilderness, the Israelites had the good news preached to them. Have you ever heard someone ask this question, well, what is the gospel? Well, and they get all confused by it. And I understand why, because in Luke, the angels declare that a baby has been born in Bethlehem who is Christ the Lord, and that's good news for all people. So the gospel is a baby is born in Bethlehem. Okay, but then in Galatians 3.8, Paul says that God preached the good news, the gospel, to Abraham in the form of a blessing when he said all the nations will be blessed through you. Oh, okay, so the, the, the good news, the gospel is a blessing. Well, is it a baby or is it a blessing? Now the Hebrew writer says that the wilderness Israelites had the good news preached to them when they were given the promise of entering his rest. Do you see why we, in Christianity, it's so silly. Remember the old, the, the illustration of the blind men trying to figure out what an elephant looks like? And one grabs the trunk and one grabs the tail and that's, that's us. It's entering his rest. It's the Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. And someone says, no, it's getting saved from my sin. I'm a sinner. I'm, 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 I'm going to, it's that. Someone says, no, it's just, it's a baby. Are we really this silly? You know, spoiler alert, the writer of Hebrews is going to get to a place where he says, would y'all knock it off? Can we please move on? These are elementary things. You can describe salvation in more than one term because of Midrash. Again, what's the sold level of everything? Jesus. And who is Jesus? Salvation. I love the Hebrew writer because he's a little cheeky. I mean, he's talking to the Hebrew people. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. He said, really? What about Hayom? What about what God has said today? Are you listening to that? So how do you affirm the validity of the promise? How do you illustrate that God will do exactly as he promised Abraham, as he swore to the Israelites, as he proclaimed to us in his son? You midrash and you remind the Hebrews of what happened to those who would not believe, who were faithless, because that was a promise. God swore in his wrath, you will not enter my rest if you do not believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would, what? Believe. If you don't believe, guess what? You ain't going in. Period. That's a midrash. Entering the Sabbath by metonymy and by midrash is speaking about the ultimate salvation in, in Jesus. And Jesus isn't just my Savior. Isn't it interesting that of all the names that God could have had for his son, he could have used the word uh, for Savior. He didn't. 
He used the word salvation. Yeshua isn't just a savior who saves me for something disconnected from himself. He is not only the one who saves me, he is the thing that I gain by his saving me. He is my salvation. Because all things come in him, by him, and through him. If I have an inheritance, it's not that he won me an inheritance that somebody else is going to give me. He is the inheritance. He is my rest. He is my salvation. He is the mystery revealed. So how do you stress it? You kind of poke your Hebrew brothers in the eye and say, um... We kind of have a moment in our history where our people had a chance to enter and they didn't because they did not believe. Verse 4. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to him, did you hear that? to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, disbelief, lack of faith. He again fixes a certain day, today, everybody say today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The writer uses the seven-day creation midrash to say that even that, even the creation week, you can compare and you can connect what God did in that seven days to what God is promising to do for us for an eternity. That's a midrash. He stresses that we have a promise that remains, which means now in these last days, we have been spoken to through the sun. We face the same choice as they did in the midbar in the wilderness. Are we going to listen to God speaking to us, medaber? Are we going to listen to the sun? The son himself is a means of making the promise because he's a descendant of a man whom God promised to give life. And how does he stress this? He stresses that there is a day called today. You ever heard someone say, well, God only named one day. You ever heard of that? Not true. The writer of Hebrews pulls from the Old Testament text and says, do you see how God, yeah, he, he ordained the Sabbath day. But he's also reminding us of today. And all the things he said related to today. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his word, don't harden your hearts. Why? Look at me. Because God's word knows the truth about what's in your heart. Are you with me now? Sidebar. Calling the seventh day Sabbath doesn't get you entrance into the rest of God. Well, Sunday's not the Sabbath. And the thing that the church needs to know the most is that Sunday is not the Sabbath. You know what the church needs the most? Today. Today. 
Jesus. That's right, sister. I'm going to get some response. Maybe from a child, but I'll take it. Today, don't harden your hearts. Keep listening. Keep trusting. Keep following. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Another sidebar. This is not a proof text about Gentiles keeping the Sabbath. Please knock it off. That's not his point. You can love the Sabbath. You can choose to keep the Sabbath. You can embrace the revelation of the Sabbath. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you, the Sabbath doesn't connect you to the Lord of the Sabbath, you can call it the Sabbath from now to kingdom come. You're not going into the kingdom. It's not the fact that you know the right name for the seventh day of the week. It's whether or not we have heard what he is speaking to us about the Son. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. He's talking about Jesus. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall, uh, fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now we get to verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both, both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. With whom <laughs> we got to do business. Now do you understand the meaning of Hebrews 4.12? It comes as, 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 a, as a PowerPoint to what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. Those people, God knew what was in their heart, and that's why they did not enter. Now do you understand why he begins this chapter, hey, you need to be terrified. What do you mean? Because there's a promise that yet remains, and there's an enemy trying to talk you out of it. There's, there's a whole host of rabbis and former believers on, on the internet trying to say, you know what, Yeshua isn't who he said he is. And if you buy that, you will not enter his rest you will not experience salvation. You will not be saved from your sins. You will not inherit the promise. And that is terrifying. That's what's so powerful about this book. In these last days, the writer of Hebrews is saying, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing listening to people undermining your faith in the word of God? Well, that's just commentary. Well, what, what are you doing listening to people who are saying, well, Jesus, he was just, he was just an agent of God, or he was, he was just, you know, he is the word of God made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Why are you listening to that? Don't you realize what is at risk if you stop listening to the word of God, and Yeshua is the word of God. Therefore, he returns to the high priest Midrash. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
entered through the heavens. Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. By the way, that's altar terminology. See what he just did there? He just threw a little Hebrew nugget in there. He's talking about the high priest. What does the high priest do? He draws near. How does he draw near? Through the sacrifice. How do we draw near to God? Through the sacrifice of his son, who is also the high priest. Genius. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For it is not the angels to whom he gives help. It is the descendant of Abraham, Yeshua. And if Yeshua is the one who has received all the help, where are you going to find yours? In him. So how in the world did we go from introducing a high priest comparison and connection to a faithless generation in the wilderness? Well, this is what Midrash does. It makes you think through the connection. So let me ask you a question. When you think of the high priest, what distinguishes or differentiates the high priest from just a regular priest? Think about it just for a moment. I'll have a moment of refreshment. Anybody want to buzz in? The high priest, what about the Holy of Holies? Say it out loud. Thank you, Michael. He's the only one who enters in. Connection made. Why are we talking about a generation that didn't go in? Why did they not go in? Faithlessness. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, I don't have time to get into this. I'll just say it and make you mad. And we can come back to it later. Paul says, why, why are you wanting to go back under the law? You're turning back. Chris has said this many times. Why do you want to go back to Sinai? I'm not demeaning the law. No one in the New Testament does. But the law was to bring you to the Messiah. The living word of God, righteousness incarnate. No, 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 I want to go back and make sure that I have all the definitions of these words right and I pronounce this right and I, and I, I want to make sure I'm on the right day. And... You want to go back. Oh, I've made you mad enough now. I'll move on. That's the point of connection. Our high priest, unlike that generation that didn't go in because of faithlessness, he goes in through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies, takes his place at the right hand of God, and he does it because of his faithfulness. Do you hear that? 
This is the point of the comparison. You can follow the example of those who didn't believe because God had made a promise. You don't believe you're not going in. Or you can follow the one whom he puts before you and says, this is my son. Listen to him. That's exactly what God said. This is the Midrash of the faithful high priest and a faithless generation. There's no promise greater than this for the fact is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have eternal life. We're only going to go a few verses into chapter 5 as we wrap it up. For every high priest is taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, but also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but he receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ, the Messiah, did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Did you hear those words? Today. He is the only begotten son who is the promise of God. And he's been set before us. And the question is, will we listen? Will we obey? Worship team, you may return. This is the today that God was talking about. And that is our Hebrew heritage. Every way, the temple, the tabernacle, the, the times of the Lord, the, 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 the life of the patriarch, it was all pointing to the sun and setting up our moment. Because you know what? There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's coming. Oh, but Lord, the wilderness is hard. No one told me what being an adult was going to be like. You may have seen my post. They tell you when you're a kid, oh, you're going to become a grown-up. G-R-O-W-N. No, 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 no. You become a grown-up. G-R-O-A-N. Ow! Life suddenly has sound effects for everything. I used to just stand up. Now I have to, and then every once in a while, you have that successful, life isn't easy. And sometimes we want to turn back. It was easier in Egypt. It was easier when there was just a, a list of rules for me to do. You're asking me to put my faith in someone else, but everything in my flesh says, trust me. 
That, that, that makes more sense to my flesh. Your flesh is lying. He says, man, you don't want to go back to slavery. Salvation is still a promise, and it's coming. He started this whole thing by telling us we have a high priest who's greater than Moses because he was, Moses was great. He was faithful as a servant in the house of God. But Jesus is the son of God and he is over God's house and he is the promise. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. And I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Because I have gone in because of faithfulness. I will come back that you may be where I am in the Father's house. That is one holy midrash. And it's an amazing promise. Will we be the generation that truly hears and truly believes and truly enters. A couple months we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit has entered us. We're going to see if we believe it. I do. So what is the drosh? What's the application? Life is hard. He has made you a promise. Trust him. And know that the same promise that he fulfilled, the same word of God that he has spoken about those who don't believe, he has spoken about those who will believe. And if he kept his word about those who didn't believe, how much more will he fulfill his promise for those of us who will believe? As we go into this time of response, as we sing, it's not just a time to sing. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to answer a very important question. What is in my heart and mind? Uh, am I thinking about going back? Am I thinking about walking away? Or am I absolutely committed? to entering in through the one who entered in for me. Let's worship. Let's think. Let's consider Jesus as we worship.